Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Henhouse Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode number 51 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, and I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, in the Henhouse Studio, my little place here where I make records. Before we get going here, I need to reach out and ask for some help in keeping this podcast up and running. So far, I've been relying on one-time donations from all of you to help me with the show's overhead, which is much appreciated from all of those who have contributed, and you can still do that. But I've set up a new way that you can be an ongoing supporter of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over these final six episodes of Season 2, I'd like to encourage you all to head over to the Patreon page that I've started for the podcast. You'll find it at patreon.com slash makersandshakers. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash makersandshakers. Many of you know about Patreon already, but for those who don't, it's a way for you, the listener, to kick in and support the show on a monthly basis rather than a one-time donation, even if it's as little as a buck a month. It's simple and secure. I'd like to quickly explain what the overhead is on a show like this. For regular listeners, you'll know that the show's unique content is not just an interview format, but music clips are also used to demonstrate what we talk about on the show and that's what makes the show cool and different, but it's what also makes the show, on the production side, time-consuming. The editing and everything involved on an absolute minimal basis takes us about four to six hours per episode, which I currently pay someone to do. Then there's the hosting of the files, the launching and promotion of each episode, which, while not 
extravagant is just an expense that I can no longer really handle on my own. I love doing this podcast, and so I'm throwing it out there to you, my listeners, from over the last couple of years to help me by kicking in a little bit each month. As I said, even as little as a dollar a month would help. Um, there are some exclusive rewards that start happening at the $5 per month level and going up from there. And together we can keep the show going. So we're going to see how this Patreon campaign goes. And if we hit our goal over the next six weeks or come pretty close, we will know that there are enough people out there willing and able to keep making it happen. And we'll keep bringing it on for you. Once again, the site can be found at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. As always, you can also make a one-time donation, if you'd rather, at my website and the podcast home at stevedawson.ca. And we can also always use your help in spreading the word by leaving us a review or comments on the iTunes Store podcast page. Thank you all for listening and supporting. All right, on to this week's show is my guest and friend, Mr. Amos Garrett, who has become a legend in Canada, where I'm from over the last 30 years of living there. But before that, back in the 70s, he was making an incredible living playing on a whole ton of cool records, uh, playing all these slinky, awesome, weird guitar solos. Uh, Amos pioneered a whole bunch of crazy techniques to do with bending that are inconceivable, really. High interval bends, multi-string bends. Sometimes it sounds like a pedal steel. Sometimes it sounds like a voice. He's a really unique guitar player and has an immediately recognizable style. Uh, his version of Sleepwalk is a real classic, and he's he's done a few versions of it that are pretty astounding. Um, I got to know Amos probably about 10 years ago. I did some touring with him, and he would tell these hilarious stories, and he's just a funny dude who's, he was involved in all kinds of great sessions. So his story is he was born in Detroit and spent a little bit of time in his childhood there, and then moved to Canada and flipped between Toronto and Montreal, went back to the States, uh, lived in Woodstock, uh, where he got involved with all kinds of great stuff, like the Paul Butterfield Better Days Band. Um, he made a couple classic records there. That was the band with Jeff Muldaur, and also worked with Jeff and Maria Muldaur. Played on Maria's debut solo record, which was huge, and played arguably one of the greatest electric guitar solos of all time, Midnight at the Oasis. And if you don't know that, you should just stop right now, go listen to that song, check out the guitar solo, and your jaw will hit the floor. But not only that, you will just hear his unique sound and tone spelled out for you in that song. Anyway, the success of that song led to him doing a whole ton of great sessions. Uh, also, he, he was involved with The Great Speckled Bird, which was an electric project that Ian and Sylvia became. I think Ian Tyson wanted to get into some um, more rock and stuff after they'd been a folk, a successful folk duo and got in touch with Amos and said, yeah, I want to put together an electric band. And that became Great Speckled Bird, which was a big record and really an incredible record. Check that album out. It came out in 1970 and it predated Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which many people consider to be the first country rock record of all time. Well, it's not. The Great Speckled Bird really is the first record that's kind of a country record and kind of a rock record, and it's awesome. It's got Amos all over it, and Buddy Cage plays Wicked Steel on it, and it was done here in, in Nashville. And that's an important piece of Americana music and the history of it right there. He also got to work a bunch with um, Todd Rundgren on uh, some of Todd's productions, which included people like um, Jesse Winchester and Todd's early solo record as well. So 
I wanted to talk to Amos about that stuff. He moved up to Canada where he's had a very long relationship with the great Stony Plain Records, where he's put out a ton of awesome albums. He also had a super cool project with Doug Somm, the legendary Texas musician. Amos and Doug made a cool live record called Live in Japan that came out in the 90s sometime. Uh, He also has The Cold Club is another one of his jazz projects. And about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, he put out a wicked tribute to Percy Mayfield called Get Way Back. You got to check that one out. And we got to talk about all that stuff and more. I had a very finite amount of time with Amos. He had to run off to a dentist appointment. So um, we fit this interview in. And of course, I would have liked to talk to him about a bunch of other things. But we, we managed to squeeze in as much as we possibly could in the hour that we had. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sone Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And so, without further ado, here is my conversation with the mighty Amos Garrett. Hey, man. Yeah. We connect. We are at one with the universe. <laughs> Apparently. How are you doing, man? Good. Okay, man. So, I know, um, I know you have to go at a very specific time, so I'm just going to dive right in and we can catch up and talk about stuff as we go, okay? You bet. So, there's a bunch of stuff I'd like to talk about, like your history and stuff, but... Um, Let's start off and talk a little bit about guitars. Um, now, you're associated with uh, Telecaster, of course, and I'd like to, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your telly, but also um, I know with a lot of the um, current projects you're doing, which is more of a jazz thing, you, you also um, play some arch tops. Um, can you tell me what your main axes are these days and a little bit about them? Sure. Well, of course, the, the, the famous red Telecaster... Yeah. Or infamous red Telecaster. <laughs> uh, I've 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 always told people that ever since I've started playing electric guitar, I either played Telecasters or I stray from Telecasters. Okay. And but I only stray. I always wind up going back Coming to back. them for one thing or the other. They're like that, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're the most utilitarian guitars. Are very versatile. Uh, they're tougher than nails. They're very hard to to damage. You know or, or uh, uh, they travel well, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that that would describe a lot of solid body guitars. But Telecasters have a really unique tonal situation yeah. regarding the, the bridge pickup. That, of course, it, you know, most famously, you know, used in in more sort of sort of a country and rockabilly playing, as you know, ex- exemplified by you know James Burton, number one, sure. and and all his disciples, Albert Lee. And, all, all the great telly players, uh, uh, Don Rich, uh, 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 Amos Garrett, uh, etc. We could go on about them forever <laughs> and ever. But anyhow, I've had them. I've ha- I've been playing telly since uh, I, I guess uh, uh, early sixties. Oh, really? Okay. I've had quite a number of them. Uh, the, the best, uh, the last one I had, well, we were playing a gig in Boulder, Colorado, and. I was walking down the street one day, and I saw this classic kind of uh, '60s mountain hippie guy, you know, <laughs> and dreadlocks and the tie-dye shirt, and, and he had this guitar uh, uncased over his 
was just sort of over his back. He had, he had a, a piece of rope on it for a strap, <laughs> and it was filthy. It was just covered with dirt. Ew, Looked gross. like he'd been prodding a campfire with it. <laughs> and I, I noticed at uh, that time, that that would have been around 1970. Okay. And uh, at that time, you know, CBS uh, uh, had taken control of Fender. Yeah. And uh, one change they made in the Telecaster is they quit putting that uh, that laminate strip up uh, up the up the, the back, the of, back the of the neck. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to call that the skunk stripe, yeah. and that's how you how you could identify a, a fifties a pre CBS Telecaster up to about nineteen sixty two or something. Right. And I, he he had this thing this guitar over his back and and uh, with the back faced out. So I I spotted the skunk stripe on the guitar. And I went up to him and I said, "Hey, man, I'll I'll give you a hundred dollars for that guitar." And he went, "Well, hundred dollars, well, far out." And uh, he he did. He sold me the guitar, and I was at, we were on our way to soundcheck. I, I, it's all coming back to me now. So I went to soundcheck and I was playing a uh, I was in one of my stray from Telecasters moments and I was playing a, a, an old Epiphone Sheraton, a beautiful guitar, one oh, of those. Yeah. One of those instruments that you somehow sold or got rid of, and you really wish you didn't. That's like a casino, right? I uh, know a Sheraton. A Sheraton is very much like more like a three thirty-five, except oh, okay. it had those little, uh, the small single coil. They used to call them Johnny Smith pickups. They looked like yeah. a miniature humbucker. Right. And, uh, but they were they were the Epiphones of that era, the early sixties. They, they were they were. They were made nicer. That, yeah, they yeah. were made ni- nicer than the Gibsons, I think. And it, it was just gorgeous. And uh, it developed an electronic problem that drove me crazy, and I got rid of it. Okay. But anyhow, I went to Soundtrack with this Telecaster, <laughs> and uh, I, I plugged it in, and it worked. And uh, the the tone of the back pickup was just incredible because they're very they were very erratically made guitar, I think. And some of them are just much better than others. And uh, or, or rather than a scant few of them are a, a lot better than the norm. And th- this one just had that sound. It was it was, it was instant James Burton. Wow. And I said, oh, man, I got one here. So I, I, I ran out and bought a case for it later yeah. that day. And A strap? You, you didn't use the rope? <laughs> yeah, like that there. But in in time, it, it uh, the, the neck was impossible. I wound up putting a hollow uh, uh, space-age uh, graphite neck on it. Oh. It was made by a company called Modulus Graphite in San Francisco, and it, it was a they're they're fantastic fantastic necks, but the one uh, the, the they only made it in one size, and the neck was just too narrow for me. Okay. Uh, and uh, I I fought that you know the narrowness of that neck, and I have very large hands, and that that exacerbated the okay. the problem with the narrow neck. And and one day. I walked into a Long and McQuaid in Calgary. I, this is just shortly after I moved back to Canada from the States after, after living down there for 20 years. And this would have been about, well, I know it was, it was 1991. Uh-huh. And I walked into a Long and McQuaid in, in, in Calgary in the old store, and I went to uh, uh, the rental department to rent an amplifier. And I, I it just happened to look up at the the guitar rack, at, at, at the rental uh, the rental guitars, and I spotted this red t- Tele Custom. Those are the ones with the, the the white binding around the edges, yeah, yeah, and stuff. And uh, I spotted this this guitar, and I asked the guys. I said, "Can I just 
plug it in in an orchard. And I tried it, and oh man, was it ever nice! And it had a rosewood neck and uh, wider than my uh, my old '57. Uh, that was a 1957 Tele that I bought in Boulder, and uh, and it was really comfortable to play, and it had a, had a great sound. Uh-huh. And uh, I was hesitant to to get rid of the old Tele just for various sure. reasons. Uh, I don't realize think it was all that valuable because. The neck, you know, it didn't have the original neck, and, and yeah, I, I kept the original neck, but it was unusable. You could never play it. And, uh-huh. uh, I wound up sell, selling it to uh, a, a singer songwriter from Calgary named Mark Sadler Brown. He's he's got that guitar now. Okay, I called that guitar Old Yeller, <laughs> and, and and the red and the red telly that that I kept ever since, which was a 1991 uh, Japanese built reissue. Right. Uh, the, I call that the big red machine after the Cincinnati Reds, yeah. of course. And I made quite a number of subtle uh, changes to it. My luthier is a guy named uh, Miles Jones, who's uh, my favorite electric guitar luthier. That, that, uh, Where is he? Is he in Calgary? Yeah, he, uh, he's, he's been in Calgary forever and ever. He's just kind of moved up country and painted his mailbox blue uh, in the last couple of years. He lives up uh, west of Red Deer out in the country. But he comes into Calgary to pick up instruments and drop them off. And he's still got his same business going. And he's a fabulous electric guitar luthier and, and acoustic, actually. But <clears throat> Anyway, I digress. But over the years, one thing I've done is I think I was maybe the first guy to add a third pickup to a Telecaster. I, oh. I, I, I don't know anyone that's done it sooner. And uh, actually, it was Jeff Gold. I was back in San Francisco packing that guitar one day. And uh, uh, actually, no, actually, I put the third pickup into Old Yeller. And uh, when I decided... Uh, like a middle pickup? or Yeah, a middle pickup. It's like a Stratocaster. And in fact, it yeah. was a a Stratocaster pickup. It was a Seymour Duncan quarter pounder Strat pickup okay. that I added as a middle pickup and I put a five position Strat toggle switch in, in the guitar. And when I decided, finally I said that I was, uh, the Big Red was going to become my number one guitar, I took all the electronics out of uh, Old Yeller except for the, the bridge pickup because the uh-huh. bridge pickup and both guitars were really, really good. So I just I went with the bridge pickup in 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 the Big Red machine, and I added the uh, Seymour Duncan quarter pounder. I had to have uh, it was Miles routed routed the body out for the middle pickup, and uh, I put a red lace sensor in for for the for the neck pickup, uh-huh. and and a five position switch, and I also used. Uh, larger than normal frets. I couldn't give you the fret number. I know they're Dunlop frets, and I've, they've lasted me for a ridiculous amount of time. Uh, they're big honking frets, though. Yeah, really yeah. big frets, and it, it's just because you know this sort of extreme bending, gl- yeah. bl- glissando thing, and the multi-string bending thing that I do. I I need a lot of purchase on the strings when I bend. I remember playing John Lee Hooker's guitar, but it had no frets at all. I mean, there there were frets <laughs> just there. Ground right down to the. Neck. They were they, they were purposefully ground flush <laughs> w- with the wood with the fingerboard, so they the guitar buzzed everywhere. Right, which was which just, is cool for John Lee Hooker. For John Lee, John Lee, it was fabulous. It, yeah. it was just I love playing his guitar, 
knock me out. But anyway, no, I need just the reverse. So I, I, I need okay. railroad ties for frets. Okay. And other than that, I, I haven't done much except Miles does a thing called amosizing where my action is also extremely low. And uh, Miles is able to do that because he, he, one point in time, he took all the frets off, off my fingerboard and he planed down the upper half of the neck so that it was almost dead flat. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have a recurve. Like you have to have a curvature in your, in your neck or, or you're going to get buzzes. Yeah. But in fact, you really only need an up curve from about the center of the neck uh, back to the nut. Okay. And you have a slight upslope there, but by flattening the the other half mm-hmm. right up to the whatever it is on a telly, 24th fret, I think. You can lower the action. Yeah, you can keep the the action uh, amos low, which is really low, okay. without any buzzing or anything okay, like that. Okay, cool. There. You're talking about some of the bendy kind of stuff that you do, and I'd like to ask you a little bit about how your style developed, because it's so unique and it's so um, vocal in a way, and it's kind of like, sounds like slide guitar sometimes. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know a, a little bit about where you're coming from, but I'm sure the people that are listening to this would want to know, like, um, you know, as far as... Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about growing up and, 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 uh, I know you were born in Detroit, but you moved to Toronto and lived in Toronto and Montreal. Maybe you could talk about your early experiences, uh, playing the guitar and who your influences were and stuff like that. My parents moved from, I was born in Detroit. My parents moved to Toronto when I was like five. Uh So I, I don't remember a whole lot about Detroit other than going back there a lot when I was older to visit, uh, friends, parents, friends, and stuff. Stuff like that, and, and playing gigs there. There, mm-hmm. but anyhow, I grew up in Toronto uh, for the most part. With one, uh, my dad was transferred briefly to Montreal on business when I was in my teens uh, for about f- five years, and then he was sent back to Toronto. The company he worked for, which was uh, Union Carbide. Okay. Uh, anyway, I, in terms of I. I my first musical experiences were basically like most kids my age, at least middle class kids and stuff. Was we, piano lessons were almost uh, you know uh, an obligation that you, right. you had. You know, so but I, I took piano lessons uh, very young, starting about age eight, uh-huh. nine, ten, up in there. And when I got to be about eleven or so, my my piano teacher told my parents that she thought I was uh, musically extremely prodigious and and I, she wanted to pursue uh, music instruction with me but she didn't want to really concentrate on the piano other than using it as a, a tool to teach me theory okay. uh, and she said because his He's not very coordinated digitally. His <laughs> fingers, are, he, he's kind of spastic, you know, but he has... Um, Those musical, giant meat hooks. Yeah, he, he's got meat fingers, but he's got, you know, a musical brain that's, uh, that's really okay. potent. He says, I think we should switch him over to find another instrument that he really wants to play that takes less uh, digital, you know, coordination. Uh, something like... A trumpet, you only have to three fingers, would, you know, are involved. Or even better, a trombone. You just grab a trombone. You know, you grab it, grab the slide with one end, You're and going. you grab the bell end in the yeah. other half. And I happened to, I had a, my family were, 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 were serious jazz aficionados. My father was a part-time musician when he was young, and oh. 
played in in traditional, you know, like Dixieland style jazz bands in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, he played uh, like around Detroit. Yeah, he played jazz violin and drums. Wow. I could waste a, a, a good hour talking about my dad's music, musical uh, mm-hmm. uh, history, uh, which had an awful lot of just being a super jazz fan and living in uh, New York in the 1930s and, and spending uh, all his earnings on 52nd Street and in Harlem going to jazz clubs and stuff. Wow. That's a major part of my, my musical background, though, is is in sort of traditional jazz training. Where a lot of people uh-huh. hear that in my playing that are jazz musicians, and even when I was, you know, playing blues and country and stuff, I often have, have jazz players or people that are at least very jazz cognizant come up to me and say, you, you know, you don't chord the way the average blues players chord. It's just, it says you do all that, you do all that stuff they do, but then you do all these, you have all these other, you know, chord shapes and inversions and. And and an approach to time and stuff. He says you 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 gotta have some sort of jazz background. It's not as obvious a part of my style as I hear it. It's pretty it's pretty in there, man. Like it's pretty front and center. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because you're a player and you can hear it. But a lot a, a lot a lot of people, uh, even though they're big fans, they don't they don't realize that I have a jazz background. I finally made a jazz album. Uh, and formed a, a jazz group about five, six years ago, and made a. Yeah, I love the record too. You, you have the record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holger uh, gave it to me. Well, I loved it. Well, sadly, the the other my guitar partner in, in the Amos County Jazz Trio died two years ago, uh, right. very unexpectedly, cancer. Yeah. And Keith was a very unusual player, and uh, he sort of came out of the whole Ed Bickert, Lenny Bro tree of life of, of, that relied you know, heavily on a lot of harmonics playing and yeah. stuff. He could do all that, that stuff. Anyhow, the combination of our two styles, I think, came up created this sort of third entity that was really unique, and, yeah. and I, could, I couldn't pursue it without him. So, and, and right. When Keith died, I, I, I kind of took a sabbatical for about a year. I'm now working on a, on a, a I've revived my blues band. I found a, I found a really remarkable keyboard player. I've known about this guy for a long time, but you know, sometimes you, you, you can't. I, I wanted to work with him forever and ever, but I just sometimes you you know commitments are such that you you, you know you can't you can't always just yeah. pick and choose the players you want to be with. But anyhow, it's finally worked out. His name is Julian Kerr, and he's just a, a monster on. One of the rare guys I know that is really a, a really accomplished piano player and a really accomplished Hammond organ player at the same time. That's hard. They're totally different beasts. Most guys are usually one or the other, and and then sort of fiddle around with the other and other mm-hmm. keyboard. But Julian's a killer on both of them. Oh, cool! And we have a duet going, and also I've incorporated Julian into the the A team, my, my my blues band of thirty years running. And yeah. The A team is now all, all respect to past uh, members but it's a, it's the strongest a team that I I've ever I've ever had I love love playing with these guys. Yeah, there's been a few lineups. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so man. that's that's a a good thing. Yeah. I guess the other aspect of my playing though is that the bending and glissando thing. Yeah, can we can we talk a bit about like when you when you started playing guitar, like we we sort of got sidetracked away from like you were playing trombone, I guess, <laughs> and then yeah, and then how old were you when you started playing guitar, and like and what were you into? 
it was kind of perfect. I was like 13. And I, I just yeah. turned into a teenager. Yeah. And it was night and it was 1954. It was the advent of rock and roll. I mean, that was the year uh, rock around the clock hit number one on the charts. And huge. And Al, and Alan Freed said, I don't know what that is. It sort of <laughs> rocks and it rolls. I, I guess we'll call it rock and roll. And, and there, there you go. And, and I, I started hearing these guys on the radio playing this kind of music that I'd never heard before. I up to that point in time, I hadn't been exposed to any forms of uh, really folk music or, or, or blues or uh-huh. I had no idea about any, anything like that. It was mostly like big band, big band jazz kind of stuff you were hearing around the house. Uh, big, big band and small band. And okay. I was also cutting my eye teeth on really early bebop and stuff too, in the early fifties, you know, like Dizzy Gillespie and, uh-huh. and, but anyhow, yeah, I was sitting there. I was hearing this different this music, a really heavy backbeat, and yeah. Uh, and the end of nineteen fifty-five, I think Chuck Berry had had one or two hits. Bo Diddley had one. Oh yeah. Or two. Uh, you know, Elvis had had his first hit, and there was Scotty Moore. You know, doing his thing, and and yeah. there's there's a whole other side. All of a sudden, there's this rockabilly thing that's starting to emerge about, about 56 and by about 57, I know there, I, I, I've read, I was reading the other day that some British music historian was saying that's when it was over, you know, <laughs> that, <laughs> that was the end, end of 1957 or, or that was <laughs> when I think Don McLean said when the music died, you know, then that's when rock and roll went to Hollywood and we got Fabian and Frankie Avalon and right. Annette Funicello and, and, and it was ruined. But that first burst of rock and roll, and I, I was hearing these guys. I think Chuck Berry probably uh, inspired me more than anybody. I had a classmate in high school. This was in in Montreal who owned an electric guitar, and it was a Harmony one pickup, full body, single cutaway, inexpensive guitar. And he never played it. He just I don't know. His parents had given it to him. Right. And he, he never played it. And I, I asked him if I could borrow it. And he said, sure. And <laughs> I, I borrow it. And I, I'm left-handed. A lot of people notice me you know, if I'm signing, uh, you know, autographing CDs. They'll say, oh, you're, you're left-handed, but you play right-handed. How did that happen? I said, well, it goes back to that first guitar. I mean, I, I'd, I'd take it home and I'd, I'd restring it. I'd have to go buy another set of strings <laughs> out of my allowance, right. you know, and, which considered probably ate up my whole allowance. And yeah, that sucks, man. Put another set of strings on it and string it left-handed. But then this friend of mine, he didn't like me to hang on to the guitar for too long. He figured he'd, 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 he'd never see it again. He, I guess he just liked looking at it or something. So I'd, about once a week, I'd have to give it back to him for a few days. <laughs> and then he'd say... Then he'd get bored of it again. Yeah, then he'd try to play it and go... <laughs> I learned to not cut the tag ends of the strings off hardly at all. Yeah, just restring it with the old strings again. Yeah, yeah. I, I still do initially, that. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, this went on for about three weeks, and I went, you know, I can't play this thing. I, I mean, it's brand new to me. Uh, I you play it with two hands, and I might as well just start playing it the way right-handed people do. You know, so avoid all this bullshit. So <laughs> that's that's how I. Came really? to play right-handed. That's yeah. crazy. So, yeah. was it like how quickly did you pick it up? That must be, I don't know. It must I, be kind of unnatural playing the wrong way. I I don't know if it was or not, but I I was actually playing gigs within a year. Really? And, yeah, and 
uh, I was playing gigs in a, in a sort of a Jewish society uh, dance band yep. uh, with a class, another classmate of mine who played electric bass horribly. But <laughs> uh, we had a little rock and roll band that we formed. What was that band called? Phil Sherrick and his orchestra or something okay. like that. Yeah. Uh, we played weddings and bar mitzvahs and sweet 16s and that sort of stuff. But he came down to uh, a, a rehearsal of our rock and roll band one day to see how his, his boy was doing on electric bass. And he heard me play and he said, I want to hire your friend to play guitar yeah. in my band, but right. you're not welcome. <laughs> he wouldn't hire his own son. Anyhow, somehow he got, I think his mother shamed him into, or his wife shamed him into, Barry wound up playing in the, the society band too. Uh-huh. And the rock and roll band was called the Seventeens. We were awful. Of course. We could only play like charity gigs and stuff and benefits. And well, uh-huh. I, I remember playing a mental hospital. Really? In Dorval with them. And it, it really <laughs> opened my eyes up. <laughs> uh-huh. I went, oh boy. So here we go. Uh, anyhow, that's sort of how I got started. Yeah. And uh, and right away, I mean, I was just trying to copy, you know, learn every Chuck Berry lick I could, learn every James Burton lick I could, uh, on, you know, on that end of the spectrum, uh, you know, learn how to play like Bo Diddley. Those are the big guys for you, though, like um, James Burton and Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry were like the the main influences for you back then. Right, right off the top of my head, I would, I would say, yeah, that would, that that would be it. And some other exceptions, I, like I learned, I remember learning this the solo to Honky Tonk by uh, Bill Doggett. Yeah, uh, the guitar player's name was Billy Butler. Uh-huh. And I remember learning to play that note for note before I could hardly play any chords. It was like I, I just, I, I just ass, sat down. Man. Yeah, I went up, went down to the record store and bought a bought a copy i don't remember if it was a 78 or a 45 and i just sat down there and wore it out you know yeah moving the needle back moving the needle back <laughs> and just yeah until i until i had that i still play that so every so often i'll just throw it in the middle of some yeah. 12 bar blues just sure. just just to play it that's you know what what got me going with those those early rock and roll guitar players, mm-hmm. a, a lot of whom were playing the blues. I mean Chuck Berry was a blues player. Sure he was, yeah. He learned uh, at at uh, the T Bone Walker's feet. I mean T Bone Walker lived in St Louis for for a, a, a period of his life. He 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 moved around. I didn't know that. Oh, he lived in a lot of different cities. He he apparently he he was also he made most of his money as a pimp. And he he kept getting yeah he kept he kept getting run out of cities by apparently he was so good at it really and he and he had this animal magnetism to for towards women that that he was just taking over the business and then the, the amalgamated pimps of of Fort Worth would get together and just say <laughs> you have to leave or we'll, you know and wow. uh, he lived a lot a lot of he lived in Detroit. Uh, um, but in St. Louis years, were pretty amazing because he 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 did, he did some recordings even with video with a band because there was there was such a strong uh, early uh, center for early bebop stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he 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 had a he had a band that had a horn section. It was like Clark Terry and and John Coltrane and and Cannonball Adderley were the three horn players. 
And Chuck Berry, who was from a, a, a middle-class family, his father was a pharmacist. They're, they're quite well-to-do. He, he wasn't, uh, you know, out of the cotton fields or right. poor, poor urban slum, uh, black young black American. I mean, he, 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 his family was pretty well off, but he he just lived for music, and and he. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and T Bone Walker was his guy, and right. so uh, unbeknownst to me, as a thirteen, fourteen year old, I was being exposed to the blues as, sure. uh, as well. Yeah, and were were you hearing were you hearing stuff like T Bone Walker, or was that kind of off your radar still? Oh no, st- still off the radar, but it would okay. come because I, I would, you know, the way we, you know we buy records and we look at albums and we look at the album liner notes and. And stuff, and we'd we'd read the names of the songwriters, or the you know, or 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 some notes where where an artist would mention a, an artist that they learned from, and you go, oh, T Bone Walker, that's an interesting name. I better go back to the record store and see what I can find. And uh, you know, that that that's sort of was how I I got musically dragged back into the blues and 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 into you know the, the early. Uh, uh, acoustic blues players and stuff. It, it, it all sort of came off the back of album covers, I guess. That's how I learned a lot, too. I'll bet. Did you start playing in, like, serious bands when you were in Montreal, or was that more like when you went back to Toronto? Actually, there, there's a, there was a bit of a gap in there. Is that I, uh, in my late teens, I went to two years to a boarding school that uh, didn't really have any kind of musical activity. I actually formed a little trio there with, with a... Another guy from Montreal who played a lap guitar, and a, and a, and a townie, that that would be someone from the town that didn't go to your prep school. Right. And, and a, a townie owned a Telecaster. And by that time, I'd actually bought my first Fender, which was a Duosonic. Oh yeah. Which cool. had, had little three quarter size necks on them. Yeah. And so if I I loved that little guitar. But then I heard that guy's Telecaster, and I went, oh, so that's what. James Burton plays. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he didn't know, you know. I actually, I did know. I did know from watching the Aussie and Harriet show, you know, and you'd see James and his brother standing behind Ricky, and 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 uh, so I, I knew I knew what a Telecaster was. Were there were there any were there any real James Burton tracks that's that like really knocked you knocked you out as far as guitar playing goes? Oh God, yeah. Well, you know, Hello, Mary Lou, uh, yeah. right away. Just about any of the Ricky Nelson okay. things that he, that he soloed on, uh, yeah. uh, and on and on and on stuff. I I I don't know if you knew, but I played it. I actually finally got on stage with him only about four years ago. I, yeah, man, I've got that record too. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was just a, a, what a, a thrill. The most spiritual high of, of my career it'd be in the top 10 for sure wow. and albert lee too right and albert uh, and my old friend dave wilcox dave who wilcox. i just about grew up with yeah you know in, in toronto and uh i was scared to death yeah in that show and i played probably played that style i hadn't really i got pretty good at that kind of rockabilly telecaster thing for a while and especially when i was playing with ian and sylvia uh, Tyson, you know, in the, the Great Speckled Bird days and stuff, but I kind of hadn't played in that style for a long time, and I was shaking in my boots <laughs> before that show, and I don't think I ever played it better. You know, really? I, oh, I, cool, man. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, the, the first tune, it's hard to pick out the solos. I think I tried to, I think there's a liner notes there where I, well, I think Holger Peterson asked me to uh, 
uh, identify the solos, you know, which was, wasn't the easiest thing in the world. It was kind of Guitar Mageddon up there, wasn't it? Oh God, it was. It was. It was ridiculous. It was a moment. It was great. It was. Uh, it was also, you know, it got cacophonious yeah. at, at, at times, but at other times it was, geez, really on the money. I mean, mm-hmm. unbelievable. Each one of us named three tunes, and and that was sort of what what right. the set was composed of. And my version of Sleepwalk is it's 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 pretty different. I mean, and it's pretty one of a kind, I think. And yeah. So so we were doing it, and I think Albert. Is, I knew I know Albert not not really well, but I've known him over the years and bumped into him in different situations because I played on on two of the Emmy Lou Harris albums, the early ones, and and I'd I'd run into Albert because when he was playing with the Hot Band and. Yeah, and so anyhow, I we were doing we did sleep like that 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 day at at, a, at the Vancouver Island Music Music Fest. Now, well, we rehearsed it for oh, well, we we had a rehearsal in, in the. Uh, uh, you, you know Cumberland Colmox fairly well, I would think. Yeah, that, you, did you, you, you rehearse in that Red Schoolhouse or something? No, no, we were in the kind of the Cumberland Hotel in the bar. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So we rehearsed there, and and. Yeah. and uh, we were doing sleepwalk, and I did that first band, which is a, a half octave band, uh-huh. which I, I actually invented, came up with on the spot for the when I did the sessions, the sessions that produced uh, Midnight at the Midnight at the Oasis solo, and which is a half octave band on the third string, and it, it goes from from the fifth note on the scale up to the tonic above it. You know, it goes that's a huge band, and back down. Yeah, and and I did it, and I guess Albert had, had had never heard any of my recordings of of my version of Sleepwalk. He'd never heard me play it before, and, and I did that. Ben and he said, he said, wait a minute, Mike. He says, mate, I says, he says, what gauge is that? It's your third string, mate. And I said, it's a sixteen. He said, yeah, I'm fucking gorilla hands, mate. <laughs> he said, that's fucking impossible. I use. Two and sometimes three fingers to do that, Ben. So that's a great press quote for you to use. Great big fucking gorilla hands, mate. Yeah, <laughs> Albert Lee. <laughs> yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
<laughs> you mentioned um, some of the, like getting into the session work and stuff, and obviously that's a big can of worms, and I'd like to touch on that as much as we can in the time that we have. But um, can you tell me a little bit about um, like when you were getting serious in, in your early days, but still before you were playing, like, I guess, hooking up with Ian and Sylvia around Toronto, but also being involved in that rock and roll and rockabilly scene around Toronto and Young Street around the same time as the, the mm -hmm. Hawks were around and stuff. Um, what do you re remember about that time in Toronto? I, I was still trying to stay in school. I mean, I, I, I finished high school. I, I went to college for two years in the States and in, in Indiana, a small liberal arts school called Wabash College. It's a very, it's a very fine school, but not much of a music program. After two years at Wabash, I, during that time, when I was home on my summer vacations, I was, the, the folk music had, had reared its ugly head in, in uh, the early 60s and, uh, in, in Toronto, and a, a, a really a, quite an amazing uh, folk music scene was starting to uh, unvelop, you know, uh, to, to, to unfold. And, and develop in, in downtown Toronto in, in, in a group of small coffee houses. And, uh, I won't go into that. There's, there's books written on the subject. Uh, After the Gold Rush is a, a really good book to read about that era mm -hmm. of Toronto. But I, I started hanging out in some coffee houses, and I, I was already at, in school. I'd gotten exposed to some other guys that play, played guitars and fiddled around with uh, various instruments and stuff. And I was starting to get an idea about about folk music and stuff, and I was starting to listen to those kind of records and stuff. And then I get to Toronto, I'm hearing some of this music live in these little coffee houses, and I'm thinking, this is a place I ought to be going to uh, musically for, for however, maybe forever, I don't know. But I said, I really want to be part of this. So I, I talked to my parents and basically said, I want to transfer, you know, from... I still want to stay in school. Oh, sure, son. Sure you do. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, I want to transfer from Wabash to the University of Toronto and continue on towards my B.A. in English Lit, of all things. And uh, and they said, fine by me. Also, because tuition at the University of Toronto was about one quarter of what it was at Wabash College. Perfect. So my dad, lo yeah. my dad loved that. All for it. Said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> $700 a year instead of 3000 Okay, fine. Uh, it's about 1960. Uh, would have been uh, sort of sort of 62. Uh -huh. I would have come back to Toronto. I hardly ever went to class uh, <laughs> at the U of T. I yeah. hung out in coffee houses a lot. I was started. I got an acoustic guitar. I started jamming with people. You had sort of a jug band or something back then too, right? I had kind of a jug band thing going, yeah. And, uh, it's called the Dirty Shames. Uh, uh, we were locally very popular. Uh, we that that was more from '64 to '67. Okay. But in those first years, in like '62 to '64, I had another little folk trio that was sort of a Kingston trio kind of commercial folk group that sang harmonies and okay. and strummed Vega long neck banjos and things like that, and uh, did that. And I had a I had a friend who had a day job at an apartment downtown right off a of campus, for, off the U of T campus, and I'd go down, I'd do maybe one class in the morning at the U of T, and then I would go over to this guy's apartment, and while he was at work, I would go to his apartment, and he had a variety of instruments, and that, that's when I got, I got a little bit conversant on the five-string banjo 
a little bit, bit of which some of my right hand technique is. Uh, right. If, if you're, if, if you notice that uh, some of the faster passages I play on the guitar, because I am Mr. Cement Hands. <laughs> if 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 Eric Clapton calls himself Slow Hand, I am Cement Hands. Uh, <laughs> some of the quicker passages, like some of the soloing stuff on uh, that that Guitar Heroes album with James Burton and Albert Lee. Yeah. So some of the passages, you'll, you, you, you can hear some of the faster passages I do and playing rockabilly guitar and stuff really are incorporating banjo rolls. Right. And that's one of my little secrets to cheap speed on, on the guitar. <laughs> cheap speed, baby. Yeah. I assume that that's where you would have run into Ian and Sylvia is in those days, right? Yes. And it was during that period of time that the, the Mariposa Festival started. Yeah. Uh, I was at the original one. I think I played at the second or third one backing a Scottish folk singer named Elan Stewart, oh. as I remember. And just all, all the, I was running into the whole local Toronto scene at that time, which included uh, Ian. I don't, don't remember Ian and Sylvia as, as solo artists, but they were. Mm. Uh, I, for first time I encountered either of them, they, they had become a unit. Uh, Romantically and musically, and yeah. uh, they they just knocked me out. I mean, they were the kingpins of, of that that. Yeah, they were huge. They were huge too yeah. by then, right? Yeah. Yeah, they became huge fairly. Fair, you know, after a couple of three years, they made their first record uh, for Vanguard, and 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 they did very well. Like they were, they they went from uh, you know playing coffee houses to uh, two to four thousand seat you know con- concert halls yeah. and symphony halls and college concerts and stuff with, with no in-between that that, right. that, that, that first happened. Van Gogh our album got them there. So how did you start playing with them? The Dirty Shames uh, took, uh, was about a three-year period in my life. And when it died, I tried to put together a band uh, in Montreal. Oh, and near the tail end of the Dirty Shames, we were starting to convert from an acoustic band to a band that was partially electric. And I started playing elect- uh, returning to electric guitar, which is my first instrument. Uh, like I, I didn't originally sort of one of the more common routes in in learning the guitar in those days was to begin on a, in the folk era at least. Except I I started playing guitar before the the whole folk thing happened. Right. I was a rock and I was a rock and roll baby yeah. in 1954. You know, so my first instrument was an electric guitar. And uh, anyhow, I started playing electric guitar again, uh, a Telecaster, fittingly. Sure. And uh, also, I, I at one point in time, I, I was playing a Dan Electro, uh, and I think it just I was I, I didn't have enough money to buy a uh, a Telecaster originally, and, and you could buy a, a Dan Electro that was rebuilt by Dan Armstrong, oh, yeah, and that were kind of neat guitars, and they cost like a hundred dollars or something, nice. yeah, instead perfect. of three hundred, and that was accessible. So. But I'm mostly, uh, I was starting to play electric guitar again, and I was getting right back at it and getting back what chops I, I, I had on electric guitar originally. And I was learning about uh, skinny strings and, and unwound thirds and stuff, and I was going, oh, mm. so that's how James Burton did that. Mm. So he didn't have a wound third. I mean, I was trying to learn to play James Burton on a guitar with medium gauge strings. I mean, wow. Jesus, where, what was, where was that at? No wonder I have gorilla hands. Yeah. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I tried to put together a band uh, or join a band in Ottawa for, the, for it was only about a s- eight or nine months project 
because uh, two of the members of the band were Americans, one of which was uh, uh, Dave Brubeck's oldest son, Darius, and uh, and a friend of his who, uh, from Connecticut who was a, a guitar player, a jazz guitar player, a very, very fine one. And we started this band with a, a couple of really good Ottawa singer-songwriters, uh, Bruce Colburn's uh, mentor, which is a guy named Bill Hawkins, the late Bill Hawkins, who departed the planet a couple of years ago. And anyhow, I wound up Darius and his friend from Connecticut got drafted because uh, it was Vietnam time back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out they both got conscientious objector status, but that requires you to remain on American soil for the duration of a wartime. Oh. So they had to go back to the States, and oh, that was okay. the end of that band. Right. And I was kind of in limbo there for a couple of, I, as luck would have it, and I, I've had a lot of as luck would have it in my career, <laughs> I might add. Everybody does. To, uh, especially in that, in that I can think of at least three times when I, I had some major project in my life, like the Dirty Shames was to me for several years, uh-huh. when it came to an end, when another project just suddenly, you know, Revealed uh, the phone would ring and something would happen. And, and, uh, that, the Ottawa band, which is called the, the New Heavenly Blue, wasn't exactly it, but right around when it sort of collapsed, uh, and, and and I was like sort of twiddling my things, and what would happen? The phone rang, and it was Ian Tyson, wow. and he had decided that he, he and Sylvia wanted, uh, as the whole sort of folk rock thing was uh, enveloping at that time. This would have been about '67 late 67, it says that he wanted to, them to cease being an acoustic duet, mm-hmm. which is something I think they kind of re- regretted uh, to a certain degree later, but I won't go into that, but that he wanted to start you know, a, 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 a band with electric instruments and a full rhythm section, drums, electric bass, and, and he had a concept for something that was possibly the... It was either either Ian and Sylvia and the Great Speckled Bird or the Birds, when the Birds sort of uh, transformed from being a sort of a West Coast psychedelic Into kind of band to a to a country rock band. Yeah, uh, it was sort of the Aboriginal you know country rock group, and that yeah, that that, that Great Speckled Bird record is totally ahead of its time, man. For for when, yeah. if you place it in where it is in in recording history, it's like before any of that country rock stuff was coming out, and and that's exactly what that stuff is. It's just paving the way for it. I, I think I think it would have probably been within months of Sweetheart of the Rodeo myself. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it would have been a long time before that. In fact, I think I remember Ian telling me that he talked to. The then Jim McGuinn, later Roger McGuinn, yeah. uh, on on a plane flight somewhere, talking about the concept of of, okay. of country rock, so country music, but with a, a heavier hitting rhythm yeah. section, basically. Yeah. Where did you record that um, Great Speckled Bird record? Was that in Toronto or was that in Nashville? No, it was in Nashville. Okay, and, it was and, in Nashville, and I. I, I Buddy Cage plays on it. I I, I remember Char, I remember Charlie Talent was the engineer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Todd Rundgren produced it. Yeah, right. And you worked with you worked with him a lot. Uh, not a lot, not a lot, but a, a bit because Todd was around Woodstock a lot. He was a, yeah, uh, he, he was you know Albert Grossman was his biggest champion, and Albert yeah. was yeah. the king of of you know Bearsville, Woodstock, New York City, for that matter. 
in, in those days in the business world. And uh, so I ran into Todd a lot and played on one album of his. Uh, yeah. I can't. He did, he did that. Um, didn't he produce that Jesse Winchester record too that you did? Yeah, yeah. He produced. Uh, Third Down and 110 to Go. I think he's Yeah, the that was that. the first one that I played on. And then uh, Learn to Love It was Jesse's third record. And I, I, I played all over that thing. I got some really nice shots off on that record. Actually, on both of them, I did a little uh, Telecaster, kind of banjo rolly, uh, hot hot shot guitar playing on on third down. Yeah. And and uh, I did did some really nice acoustic stuff on, on Learn to Love It, as I remember. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jesse couldn't, you know, just Jesse being a draft evader in those days, he, he had to record in Canada. Right. And I I was living in Woodstock, so, and uh, he he was basically being managed by Albert. And uh, so Albert sent Todd up to Toronto to, to uh, produce the second album. Yeah, I think Robbie Robertson produced the first one. Right. And I, I wasn't on that one. I remember the third one. We we, we recorded it in Montreal, in a really beautiful studio. It was in a little church, and mm-hmm. and I just remember driving up. It's not very far from Woodstock. Um, Woodstock to Montreal is maybe a four-hour drive. Yeah. Uh, but mountainous, and I remember driving up and back through incredible blizzards. Oh, really? And I remember, I remember slaloming through a multi-car wreck, like a <laughs> twenty-five car pileup in a blizzard, and and with my girlfriend with me, and and uh, you know c- coming through, you know heavy snow that was almost like a really th- to where it's like a really thick fog where you can't see uh, fifty feet in front of the car, and all of a sudden these yeah. shapes started looming up in front of me. Uh, terrifying. My girlfriend screaming and bouncing off of it. You know, we didn't have seat belts or anything in those oh days, my God. but the music was just fabulous. I mean, I, mean, I love record. that album. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so how did your session career progress? Like, obviously, like doing the Ian and Sylvia thing, that got you some traction. And then um, I would imagine when you did the Midnight at the Oasis solo, everyone wanted you to play on their records, right? Like, how? what was your arc of... It's a funny story about that. I don't know. I... We don't have a ton of time left. I should talk about the Midnight at the Oasis solo. Let's talk about that. Well, you just asked. I, I first off would say that I'd never primarily been a, a, a studio player. Uh-huh. Uh, I've I've always sort of put a, a band project in front of that kind of uh, a career. I always wanted to be part of you know a band a, a crew, group yeah. i've always I, I still am i'm still doing that you know and mm-hmm. and uh, i mean i went from uh the ian and sylvia great speckled bird days to uh uh moving to woodstock i i quit the great speckled bird in 1970 and moved to woodstock new york to form a band again mm-hmm. form a band with jeff and maria moldar uh, who got divorced within a year, and that was the end of that band. And but and again, it was another thing, you know. When 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 all of a sudden I'm in Woodstock, New York, I've got a thousand dollars in the bank and a, a car that needs payments on, and uh, I have nothing to do. And Paul Butterfield walks into the bar and go. Uh, he actually Jeff and I were uh, Moldar and I were sitting at the bar at Dini's, which is our main hangout having a beer and Paul joined us and then Albert Grossman walked in the bar and looked at us and he went in his Albert voice and he went, looks like a band to me. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, that was the better days, right? Yeah. And that became better days. uh, Right, right there. Then better days imploded a couple of years later. 
Uh-huh. This is where Midnight at the Oasis uh, uh, rears its its lovely head. Uh, was it? I was on the road with 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 Paul and 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 the Better Days band on a, in our well, late in our second year, which would have been 1963, I I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, and I had done uh, when Jeff and Maria then you had got a backtrack to Jeff and Maria divo- divorcing. When they divorced, uh, Warner Brothers, they were signed to Warner Brothers as a duet. And uh, when they divorced, uh, Warner Brothers immediately signed Jeff as a solo artist, but they weren't so sure about Maria. Uh. And they, Maria asked them, wanted a, a solo record deal with them. But they said, well, we want you to make a demo. Uh, but, uh, and we'll listen to the demo and, and think about it. So anyhow, she was in Woodstock, I was in Woodstock. Uh, this friend of hers, David Nickturn, in New York City, had just written a song called Midnight at the Oasis, which he wrote in a waterbed on a very hot, sultry <laughs> New York City summer evening. Wrote the song in a matter of about a half an hour. It just came to him. Mm-hmm. And he w- woke up and the next morning and w- went over the tune and called Maria up right away and said, I- I've written this song. It's a very unusual song. And I can only think of one singer who would do this right. And, and it, so anyhow, Maria came into the studio when we did the demo for her to, to sign the Warner Brothers yeah. with four songs, one of which was Midnight. Thank God that I got it, because it's a very unusual song in terms of its chord structure it and, is, yeah. and, and melody and stuff. And thank God I had a shot at, at learning it before we actually did the real, you know, uh, the final recording of it was done in... Uh, at Omega Studios, which was Warner Brothers' main oh. studio in North Hollywood. Okay. Uh, but anyhow, we did the demo, and Maria sent it off, and they liked it, and they signed her to a, a solo record deal. And uh, we were playing uh, Butterfield, uh, Better Days. We were playing uh, almost a one-week stand at the Troubadour, which was uh, the club in in L.A. In L.A. Yeah. Uh, in those in, in those days, Doug Weston's Troubadour. And uh, we were playing, I think, a five-night stand there. And Maria had called me up and said, I'm, I'm, I'm almost finished my, my album for Warner Brothers. She says, we're going to do one more song. And Midnight at the Oasis was kind of like the little train that could, you know, that, yeah. that kid's story. Sure. It was yeah. like, <laughs> it, it just didn't have a chance anywhere along. It almost didn't get on the record, first off. That is, they had, I think they had 10 songs finished. And oh, so you didn't play on the whole record. You just play on that one song. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I play. I pretty much played on all of her next four albums, but yeah. of course I did. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But yeah, on that, that the first album, yeah, they had ten tunes in the can, and, and there were some people. I don't know if it was Lenny or Warnicker or Joe Boyd or somebody who said, "Wow, this is enough. This is enough for an album. Let's just put it out." And somebody went, "Well, I got. I think it was probably Maria. Just I have this one more song I'd like to put on the record. And, oh, really? You really want to do that one? Because it's." <laughs> A North America, a North African love fantasy like Sheiks of Araby. No one writes songs in that genre anymore. I mean, uh, how could that? <clears throat> Anyhow, she talked them into doing this session, and it happened. And they had to set it up late at night, which was fitting, because I was I was playing at the Troubadour till about midnight. So it was like sometime after midnight, I'd gotten a cab and went up to North Hollywood, and uh, we recorded we recorded Midnight at the Oasis. Wow, killer! And uh, some Midnight at the Oasis story will probably take up the rest of this podcast for you. 
That's but all right. I, the thing was, I went in there with that with that Epiphone Sheraton. That was what I was playing then. Oh. And I'd been on the road for about oh six or seven weeks with Butter, and hadn't really noticed that my bridge had my my my, my bridge or my saddles had gotten out of adjustment somewhat. But I really noticed it in in the studio. Well, when we sat down to tune up and we started running mid midnight down, I'm playing and I'm cording up the neck and I'm a couple of the strings are sharp and stuff. And I finally, I stuck it, you know, I, I put it on an electronic tuner and checked it and I went, Oh jeez, And it, it was quite out of whack and I didn't really have time right. uh, to do it. And I knew that David Nickturn, who wrote the song, he was, he was playing acoustic rhythm guitar on, on the session. So it was, you weren't just overdubbing a solo. There was a full band playing there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I wound up overdubbing the solo, but initially I also played the, the electric uh, rhythm guitar on it, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I'm almost more proud of the, my electric rhythm playing on that record than I am of the solo. Mm. And if you listen to it, it's pretty, it's very James Nolan, you know, James Brown stick rhythm kind of right. R&B uh, st- stuff, pretty funky stuff if I do say so. I knew Nick Turn played a very, not just a very similar guitar, he played a 330, yeah. uh, which is the, the, the original guitar in that, that thin hollow body style of Gibson. It didn't have a two by four up the middle of the body. So it was, it had a kind of a different sound to the, the whole 335, 345, 355 line or, or the Sheraton and the Sheraton was a bit, but anyhow, we both had our guitars set up by the same luthier. Oh. In in New York City, a guy named Eddie Deal, who's a quite quite a famous jazz guitarist, and and very famous luthier, and and I knew that our setups were identical because Eddie Eddie Deal, when you took a guitar into him and you wanted something done, and you would say, well, I want this done and that done in the setup, and he'd say, stop, <laughs> no, 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 I will set this guitar up the way it should be set up, awesome. and and that's it. <laughs> And then when I'm done, you play it, and you tell me if you want anything different. Right. And you won't. He won't. I guarantee <laughs> you. And he was right. Wow. <laughs> he was right. So I knew that Nick Turns 330, you know, I knew it was set up exactly like mine. Right. You know, because it, it was an Eddie Deal setup. And uh, I asked him, I said, I said, I said, Nick Turn, I said, do you have your 330 out in the car or something? Like, he was playing a, um, he was playing a Dreadnought. Okay. It was, uh, you know, acoustic. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's out in the car. And I said, can I play it? I said, my Sheraton's all, the bridge is all out of whack and I do it every time. He said, okay. So I played the, the, the session with the songwriter's guitar. Wow. So that's, okay. that's kind of neat right there. That is cool. And, and was the yeah. solo, was the solo improvised or is that something that you worked out or? It was kind of both. Mm. Uh, and actually we did the bed track. Uh, the rest of the rhythm section was free bow. On, on electric bass, who, who's Bonnie Raitt's Bonnie long-term, Raitt's guy, long-term yeah. bass player, and uh, Jim Jim Gordon, uh, who gave his mother forty wax. Oh my God! You played with Jim Gordon on that? Holy shit! Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't know. Uh, he's one of the greatest drummers ever, man. I love. Oh, that he's guy. fabulous. Yeah, fabulous. I could I, I could do fifteen minutes on Jim Gordon alone. Oh my god! Uh, like maybe we'll have to do a second podcast. I think so, man. Yeah. Go go over the knuckleheads that I have known in my life. Yeah, and I think Greg Prestipino is a piano player. Uh, Nick Turn on acoustic rhythm, 
And uh, that was it for the rhythm section. Uh-huh. We cut the bed in one take. It was fucking perfect. We rehearsed it a lot. It's like mm-hmm. we rehearsed it for about an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we said, are we ready? Yeah. Okay, let's roll. And uh, we did one take, and it was so good. You know, uh, we went. We all went in the control booth and listened listen to the playback, and and then. But everybody said, "Geez, I'd like to do it again." And, well, why? <laughs> you know, like the producers were like, well, "Why? That's just just is like gorgeous." And we said, "Well, we just like playing it. <laughs> Let's do it again." <laughs> just because we. So can. we did it again, and it was identical to the first one. <laughs> and then we said, "Okay, okay, fine, we got it." Yeah. And by then, I don't know what it, what it was, two in the morning or something, and. It was like, okay, everybody go home except Amos. Now, there's going to be a bunch of overdubbing, but I had to go to San Francisco the next day to do, to do a concert, you know, with Butter. So you wanted to get out of there. Yeah, Amos has got to overdub the solo now, you know, and right. and uh, so here we go. So I, 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 I did it. I like to think I did it in one take with one punch in. Uh-huh. Uh, most of it was improvised. Uh, there were spots along the way. There was one lick that it was something that I played from another song uh, entirely. It's a little chord run. It's not one of the more dynamic parts of the solo, except that it's probably the hardest thing to play. It's a a group where I ran a group of triplets up the neck, like very quickly, like ba-da-ba-bop, but triplets that fast, you know, and and changing shape as I went up the, the neck. And I knew I was going to be doing that song, you know, sooner or later, because Maria told me, uh, after she'd gotten, you know, backtracking, uh, you know, uh, ten minutes in our conversation, so but back to when Maria's uh, demo was accepted, and she she called me up and said, "Geez, I, you know, they signed me. I'm going to do a solo record, and I want you to play on it. And I am going to. I really want to do Nick Turn's song, Mid, you know, Midnight mm-hmm. at the Oasis, and I so really want you to gonna, play. Yeah, you knew. Yeah, it was come back. Yeah, yeah. So I I I sort of you know sat down a couple of times and. Uh, she'd sent me a copy of the demo, and I I I fiddled around with a couple of things. I, I think it was uh, during one of those little semi-practice sessions where I thought I was trying to think in a North African love fantasy kind of cool. frame of mind, you know, just yeah. just like Sheikh of Araby, and right. when Rebecca came back from Mecca and and and, and Hindustan and and uh, Dardanella and all those. You know that whole style of of songwriting, which emanated in in the, in, uh, in the 1930s, they say it came about because of the advent of transatlantic uh, travel by, by by airplane, by passenger, right. but passenger plane. It, that 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 only really came about in the 1930s, and it it opened up a whole other world in the world of tourism and 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 the land of travel agents and stuff like that all of a sudden people were taking vacations in north africa and stuff and songwriters started writing songs uh, to, to make that you know they're probably paid by travel agencies and airlines and stuff to <laughs> yeah. to, to make it sound more uh, sound attractive as a tourist destination and yeah that's where that all came from but anyhow i'll finish my midnight the oasis district we're five minutes over and i gotta get going yeah you gotta go but remember when i was talking about it being the little train it could well, after the thing, after they they finished uh, finished recording it, it, it definitely made the cut. And, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, everybody loved so. it. Yeah, uh, and more than loved it. Uh, but anyhow, when the album came out uh, initially, and it's, uh, it didn't, the album didn't go anywhere for a while. And uh, they 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 put out two other singles first. Really, and I think one was uh, 
Don't You Feel My Leg, and I can't remember which other one. I think it was uh, the work song, possibly. I think that was a Kate and Anna McGarrigal tune. Yeah, yeah. And anyhow, both those singles died. And after a certain amount of time, Warner Brothers doesn't, big labels like that, you probably know, they don't, uh, they, they, they won't keep an album in their catalog that long if it's not selling at all. They just move on. Yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers has a monthly meeting at which they discuss part of the meeting will be, you know, what albums are going to get melted down and, mm-hmm. and deleted. And after about six, eight, nine months or so of the album being out and floundering down around number 200 on in the hit parade, her album came up on the chopping block one, one week or one month. And I think Lenny Warnaker, who was one of the, the co-producer, really the main producer of that album, was at the meeting with Mo Austin and Joe Smith, the co-presidents of Warner Brothers. Heavy hitters. And the board of directors, who are all kind of Italian guys, who we don't know who they are. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and they would, okay, and they brought, okay, Maria Moldar, first album, the Maria Moldar album, what are we going to do? And they basically voted to chop it. And Lenny Warnaker said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, I love this record. I love this record so much. I said, give me one more. Let me put out one more single. And they went, what? What, what, do, you, what do you want to put out? And, you know, we tried two singles. It didn't work. Says, I want to put out. But what song do you want to put out? And he said, Midnight at the Oasis. And they went, oh, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, North American love fantasy. You know, I mean, North African love fantasy yeah. song. No one's ever had a hit since 1938 was saying, ah, oh, you got to be out of your mind. And Lenny said to them, he said, you know, I've been, you know, working in the main building, you know, in the, in the Warner Brothers building since the last few months, walking around, I keep hearing the same thing from all the employees. Doesn't matter if they're the, uh, the janitor to the secretaries, uh, to you, Mo Austin, you said the same thing to the president. Everyone keeps saying, you know, that Midnight at the Oasis, that's the best song on that album. And that's my favorite song. But it's not a hit. It's just not a hit. But it is my favorite song. It is the best song of the album. Where's the logic there? Yeah. yeah. This little light bulb has gone over my head, and you've all heard the same thing, so let me put it out. And they all looked at Lenny, and they said, okay, Lenny, I think you're right. Let's give it a shot. Yeah. And two weeks later, it was like number 10 with a bullet. You know? yeah. yeah. And there you go, and that's the end of that. Wow. Well, thank, th- <laughs> thanks to them that they did that, because that, uh, that had a huge impact for you, I'm sure. Oh, it did. It gave me a job as her band leader for 10 years, and there were yeah. 10 great years there. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, thanks, Amos. I know you got to run. Um, great to talk to you. And, yeah, uh, I think, think about it. Yeah, maybe we'll do another one. I'd love to. Great knuckleheads I've known in the music business. I will uh, keep it on the calendar. Okay. <laughs> thanks so much, man. <laughs> thanks, Dave. All right, that was my conversation with Amos Garrett. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to iTunes. Check out the podcast there. Leave a rating and a review. We would greatly appreciate that. And we will see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you later. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.